shatters the frown of the nations in the thoughts of their hearts. God takes the powerful from their thrones and lifts up the lowly. God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. You're listening to Faith and Reason 360. Support for this program comes from the Joe and Louise Cook Foundation, Barbara Wendland Director, and the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation, promoting critical thinking and advocating for justice in our world. I'm Debo Dykes. And I'm Ann Phelps. And also hosting with us today is David Dykes. Glad Hello, you're here, David. Glad to be here. Great. Thank you again. And this is our second episode that I hope you are finding irresistible. Uh, with us again is Dr. Jorg Rieger, Distinguished Professor of Theology and Cal Turner Chancellor's Chair in Wesleyan Studies in the Divinity School and Graduate Department of Religion at Vanderbilt University. He is also director of the newly founded program in Religion and Justice at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Yes, Jörg, we're excited to have you here again with us. We have been exploring your work, um, your recent publication, Jesus versus Caesar. And uh, this episode, we're going to jump into the second chapter of that book, the content of that chapter. But wait a minute, Anne. Before we get off on that, I'm going to take a little privilege here because Jörg uh, is from Germany. And, you know, I just love hearing him talk in both English and German. So you're going to want to embarrass you, but, you know, just do a little for our German listening audience. Would you just do a little greeting in German? I, I could do that. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's so, so great to be here, Debo. And to the Germans, I would say hello and grüß Gott. How's that sound? Does oh, that work? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Doesn't take much. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so see. I'm so easy to please here. I'm sorry. Go it. right in. Let's, no get problem. Let's get started. Well, it gives me a lot of nostalgia to hear real German. My German skills have sadly waned in recent years in a big way. Um, I heard you earlier. I thought you. I was real impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. From someone who doesn't speak German, I sound great. Uh, <laughs> um, However, I'm even more excited to jump back into this content. Um, the second chapter of this book, I think, is such a relevant chapter. Um, and the content has the power to really shape the way that we think about some very, very pertinent topics right now, namely the relationship between religion and politics. Um, and so before uh, lighting a match to that very hot button issue in the 21st <laughs> century, uh, let's ease into it a little bit um, by talking about another very volatile but at least distant time. What, what was the relationship between religion and politics in the first century Roman Empire? That's a really interesting question, Anne, because in that time, I don't think it would have occurred to anyone that the two subjects could be separate. Mm -hmm. So for Jesus, as well as Caesar and all their contemporaries, religion and politics belong together, as did religion and economics and everything else. So the idea that religion is sort of on a separate plane that's not connected is really a modern idea. And it's on its way out now, too. So it's, it's not something that we can maintain much longer, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I mean, it really was the height of modernism, right? This separation of things into clear-cut categories, and um, and it 
yeah, it's an idea that we're now starting to see that everything is connected again. So this distinction between religion and politics and modernity, it really turns out to be a false distinction mm -hmm. because you can never separate these things. So even if you try to separate them artificially, they're still together. And that's, of course, the point of that chapter. It's not to uh, glorify religion or politics, but to say the two are always related and we have to talk about what we do with that. Well, my guess is that when ever you say that, immediately someone comes back at you and says, now wait, 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 these things have to be separate because it says in the Bible, it says in the Gospels that Jesus himself says, give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What, what can that mean if not possibly that we should separate church and state or religion and politics? What can that mean? That's that's a really big question because for most people who read this passage, they think of it in terms of modernity. They say, well, what belongs to Caesar is politics. What belongs to God is religion. Mm -hmm. For an ancient Jewish person, this is sort of the audience that uh, Jesus had in his day. Uh, the answer would have been a different one because if you asked an ancient Jew what belongs to God, their answer would not be, oh, religion belongs to God. Uh, their answer would be, everything belongs to God. Yeah, so right. if you look at the response after that passage, when, when Jesus sort of puts this out, there are some people who are really angry at him because he doesn't make it easier on people. Say, well, this is an easy mm -hmm. uh, compartment here and there, but we can now actually talk about um, those things coming together and what it means. Uh, this is, of course, how some scholars now interpret that passage is to say religion and you know, uh, everything else cannot be separated. What belongs to God is everything. What belongs right. to Caesar mm -hmm. is nothing. So so that mm -hmm. that is another way to read this passage that doesn't presuppose the religion of, uh, the separation of religion and politics, but that, that um, rethinks the whole problem in a different term. I, I really like what you say in your book. You know, we're situated here uh, in the Deep South. As you say, you've spent, you know, couple decades in Texas and we're here in Mississippi today and now you're working in Tennessee and um, in your book you draw the distinction you know okay so it means give to God what is God's means everything to God but then what does it mean to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and it it sheds light on this sort of tongue-in-cheek facetious Jesus that is saying right. fine give this coin to Caesar give Caesar this junk and it's almost as though um, you, you draw the parallel it would be like saying to someone who wanted to to bring back Jim Crow laws today, you know, fine, give to Jim Crow what is Jim Crow's. I don't want anything to do with that. Give to God what is God's, which is everything. Um, and it makes it a much more powerful um, and, and aggressive stance that Jesus takes against the authorities in that moment. And I think that matches with a lot of his ministry. That matches with the fact that in the end he gets crucified because that is too dangerous. Mm -hmm. People who talk like that yeah. are, are usually getting in trouble. But you know, what we're seeing here is it may be necessary trouble and this is the way to move in a different direction. Right. It's um, enlightening to think about the, the passage in the context in which it was written. So if we look at the Gospel of Mark, right, this is happening as Jesus has gone into Jerusalem and is in the last week of his life. And these things that he's saying aren't these easy answers, as you, as you referenced a moment ago, but really aggressive, powerful things that will bring the wrath of the empire down on his head in a matter of days. So it certainly wasn't an easy out. Yeah, and you mentioned, Jorgs, uh, about the conflict that exists between, or exists between Caesar and God and how that's gonna have to be addressed. And are we, are we addressing any of that? Is, are we um, dealing with that? 
This is a question of today. Are the people even recognize that? Well, I think that is the problem, and that's that's why I wrote the book because they're not recognizing <laughs> right. that tension. Uh, they're basically assuming that there's an identity between, you know, whoever is God and whoever is in power at a certain moment. So, you know, whoever sort of holds office, whoever has uh, a certain function, then it seems like they're not only ordained by God, but sometimes they take the place of God. And that is the big danger. And so for Christians to remind ourselves that it was not always like that, that mm -hmm. there's uh, moments, well, here we talk about early Christianity, but for 2000 years of history, it was not always like that, uh, that Christians simply obeyed whoever was in charge. And so reclaiming some of that is part of our mission. And the good news is some of it is already happening. In, in the book, I talk about black theology. Uh, that's theology done uh, by African-Americans right. uh, who in, in some moments in their own history had the good sense to say, no, this is not the way it is. We, we worship not the Christ of Caesar, but we worship a very different Christ. And, and that's, of course, going back to Jesus, what you see, you see an alternative way of not only thinking and preaching, but living. Absolutely. You know, you to, to bring it down to earth, um, as you raise up in the book, you know, Jesus really roots his theology in the stuff of daily life, right? These rural communities and real experiences. Um, and so I want to challenge us to do that here, too. It's so difficult, you know, when we think about these theoretical ideas. I'm curious, when you say that, what does that look like for a person here today to root... Um, to live out that the politics of Jesus, to live that out on a practical day-to-day -day level, does that just mean voting for a certain candidate or can that mean something more? So this is the question of politics. In, in some ways, I would say voting for a certain candidate is almost the last thing that you do mm -hmm. because politics in this sense is not limited to party politics. Mm -hmm. The two big parties in the United States, you know, they're sort of an outgrowth of what we think of as politics, but politics, by that I mean how we order um, you know, public life, how we order the life of the community. And that begins a lot uh, way before you, you cast your vote, um, your ballot uh, at, at, at the voting booth. Uh, it begins when you start taking some responsibility for the common good, you know, mm -hmm. taking some responsibility for your neighbor, uh, engaging a community, trying to improve things, trying to live a certain life. That matches a lot of what the early Christians were doing because think of it in terms of Jesus and a little bit later in terms of Paul. At that time, people did not have the right to vote. So their engagement in politics would not even have talked about, uh, you know, voting and, and those kinds of things that we think of today. But the early Christians seem to have spent a good deal of time and uh, energy on deciding things like how will we eat and how will we distribute food, uh, not how will we uh, politically resist Caesar because there was no such mechanism for doing that. Well, some it's of it amounted kind of to political resistance. That's the interesting thing. So, so the way you know, living and eating and sharing in in a different way that's different from the empire, uh, was the sort of thing that that was seen and and was rightly perceived as a political challenge. So, in that sense, it it ends uh, down the road with whoever is in power, and uh, Christians have to think long and hard about how they cast their political votes but take it back to uh, where it's all rooted. It's, it's rooted in the practices of everyday life and living a different life here is, is what really matters and, and on which everything is built. Yeah, I wanna, um, 
I, I was thinking about one of the uh, most stressful times of the year. I'm trying to think in terms of the months, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, January is such a tough month because you've got bills that come in after Christmas. And then I'm thinking, no, 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 no. I think April is really a hard month because that's when taxes are due. And in your book, you've got this uh, section that's titled Wrong God and what difference does it make? And you start off that chapter by addressing the idea of paying taxes and that paying taxes brings to light some of the political tensions. And so tell us, let's talk a little bit about that, uh, if you don't mind, Jorg, in terms of people of faith, because, um, you know, paying taxes, there are those, especially in our political climate, actually, not only today, but probably throughout many uh, of the history in this particular country. So let's talk about paying taxes and what is the relevance of that what, as a people of faith? So this goes back to the question, uh, you know, what, what belongs to Caesar? And of course, uh, to some degree, uh, paying taxes has to do with what belongs to Caesar. Right. Now, if you look at the time of Jesus, this is where I would say this is different from today. Uh, at the time of Jesus, the tax system, especially for these peasant communities in the conquered areas of the empire, was such that uh, taxes were tremendously high. And they were also not used for the common good as they are today. You know, you pay taxes, uh, your city is going to pave the roads. Well, hopefully in, in, in Jackson, this is something that's yet oh my God. to happen. <laughs> Poor listeners, no. Jackson is notoriously poorly paved with really rough soil. So. But that's the idea of paying taxes today, that, that you pay taxes uh, to build hospitals, that you pay taxes right. for the common good. In those days, paying taxes had something to do with propping up the empire and and making sure that, uh, you know, the rulers and, and the top 0.1% uh, were, were living a lavish life. Uh, and that was done on, on the back of, of the peasant communities. So so what Jesus is worried about here is not, you know, if, if you pay taxes to the government or not, but uh, mechanisms of exploitation and of oppression uh, that would ultimately not only be very hard on people, but that would ruin people's lives. So what would happen then was these uh, communities could no longer pay. Uh, they then would go in debt. They then would uh, either sort of disappear or vanish or be enslaved or break down. Uh, and, and that's the sort of thing uh, that Jesus is worried about when, when he's worried about paying taxes to Caesar. Now, Jesus would know this because he was in touch with the people. That's the other thing. So, so Jesus wasn't just coming in from the outside, but he grew up experiencing this in his own body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's funny how you, I, as I hear you talk, um, you know, you're speaking in the past tense, but a lot of this mm-hmm. <laughs> feels yeah. very present and relevant now um, that, that we find ourselves moving uh, into new new ways of, of aligning our budget and taxing our people where it seems that less and less of our money is going to our roads and our schools and and taking, you know, the things Jesus cared about, education, welfare, health care. Right. And more and more of it is going uh, and more tax breaks are, are going to the wealthy who, who are, again, as we talked about last episode, uh, cutting wages and, and those jobs are getting harder and harder to maintain for folks, even though employment is down. And it just it feels a little bit like um this gospel message has a, a relevance today, at least as much as it did then. <laughs> right. And I'm thinking, okay, so primarily we're a nation of uh, Christians. 
although thank goodness we've got a, a diverse faith community throughout this country, thank goodness, again. Mm-hmm. Um, but how, how does one who does profess to be such a um, devoted Christian, what goes on in these individuals' uh, minds, the justification that the wealthiest are taxed minimal? and that the poor are taxed maximum. And where does that money go? What do we do? What, I, I'm not going to ask the question, although I'm very tempted to do the <laughs> what would. But anyway, I, yeah. what, what do we do, Jorg? Let's take this back to the question of inequality, uh, which was very much at the heart of Jesus' own message. And uh, keep in mind that inequality back then was rampant, but it may well be today because a number that I saw was uh, in the year 150. This is sort of after Jesus, uh, 150 common era in the Roman Empire. The top 1% basically controlled about 16% of all wealth. Now, in the year 2018, the top 1% in the United States controls upwards of 40% of all wealth. Oh my so we're talking about societies in both wow. cases that are quite unequal. Uh, now it's it's worse, worse today. So the interesting question now becomes, uh, how is this inequality produced? You know, who benefits right. from it? Uh, who uh, who doesn't? And how are and Christians... Suffers? That's right. Yeah. And, and how are Christians related to that? So in, in Jesus' time, he, he was certainly challenging those who made all the benefits of off the back of the people. And that's a question for us today. Who is making these benefits? The tax system is part of it because it's a way of distributing wealth or you know, maybe not uh, charging certain people for uh, their own contributions. But I think we have to look beyond politics, tax system to the economic system. Who ultimately benefits from you know the labor market? Who ultimately benefits from cutting benefits from people? Who ultimately benefits uh, from the system that we have created? And if you ask the question that way, uh, all of a sudden you'd have to say uh, there are some real concerns that Christians bring to the table. And this is not a matter of you know between Republicans and Democrats. This is a question of common humanity. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it goes back to this question of life and death, because some people are not able to survive in a system like that. Let's talk about a minute a way that that the Roman society and our own are very similar, and that is the the economic systems that are being maintained and maintained with some force, whether it's military or whatever. Uh, The two systems aren't working. In other words, especially you talk about the 40% control of the economy by the, by the 1%. The system that is so glorified as the American free enterprise system has quit serving America. There was a time when it served it better, but in, in recent years it has done so less and less to the point that serious uh, economists who are not uh, particularly uh, burdened by our religious concerns, uh, are saying that it's unsustainable. That, yep. that that we're facing major crisis if we continue on the same tra- trajectory that we're presently on. 
And I think this is where you have to talk theology first, because what's not working, it seems to me, is a system where all power, all wealth, all control is concentrated at the top with the assumption that this is going to be good for everybody. That's, of course, the assumption of the Roman Empire, right? Uh, if Caesar is control, um, the world will be in peace. Today, I think that's the same assumption. You know, if the top 1% or the 0.1% are in control, they're the job creators, they will create jobs, hasn't happened. Uh, they're the ones uh, who will make sure everybody sort of lives a happy life, they will create peace, hasn't really happened either. And so we have to have this conversation, what's working and what isn't, uh, and, and, and who is actually benefiting from the system. And, and who is not, but but keep in mind, that's that theism that I'm so worried about. This is that top-down thing. And atheism in that context is simply saying there's something wrong with this kind of theism. And then you're opening the door uh, to talking about God in a different way, more positive way, talking about religion in a more positive way. And that can happen not just in Christianity, but but interfaith with, with many other religious traditions who are all wor worried that this is not working. Absolutely. I, I keep coming back to um, trying to put myself in the shoes of those who might resist this argument or might be deeply uh, formed and shaped by uh, a faith in this economic system and, and might align that faith with the God of Jesus um, in their own interpretation. And it makes me think um, there are a couple different routes they, they might take with this rising inequality, right? I've, I've seen the sort of afterlife escapism. Well, what happens in this world doesn't actually matter. We're going to die. And right, what we need right. to focus on is treasures in heaven. Mm -hmm. I've seen, um, you know, I have faith in God that the poor are getting what they deserve and the rich are getting what they deserve. Um, but it really does, when you put it in terms of this Jesus versus Caesar thing, it, it really helps to illuminate that that faith is a faith in the God of the empire, is a faith in the God of Caesar. And, um, it really does mean that if, if that's the God we're worshiping, then absolutely I would want to be an atheist. I would want to be opposed to that. And instead of believing in this pie in the sky nonsense, um, following a way of Jesus, enacting it, embodying it in this life, following as opposed to believing seems like a more um, Jesus focused approach. And you could even say that this alternative way of life is what ultimately leads to faith, yeah. what ultimately confirms faith, what ultimately gives you some evidence that you're not out there by yourself. Right. So when we're saying the system is not working, I mm -hmm. think that's a big issue today. But we might also talk about what is working. Mm -hmm. and, and all of a sudden you realize, um, for instance, there's uh, people getting together, starting cooperative businesses, right. uh, communities uh, doing things together, uh, planting gardens together, you know, uh, building some power together, doing stuff that matters. And, and to me as a theologian, the question is, how is God manifest there? If we're assuming mm -hmm. that God's manifest in the dominant system, can we talk about God being manifest somewhere else? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Jesus was doing. And um, that's what a lot of other religions were doing in their own ways. Uh, today, we have to reclaim it. Right. I love what I hear you saying is doing this together, doing that together. Mm -hmm. Doing something together as a community is in and of itself a radical act of resistance right now. We live in such hyper-individualized times, and I think that technology um, only exacerbates that, right? As, as it exacerbates everything, right? Technology is something that amplifies things. And so... 
um, as we live in this world where we're sort of put in these little boxes of our individual offices and our houses, we have our own four walls, we don't share common living space with people, to make the choice to be in community and in relationship and to share what you have among people around you is in and of itself a radical act of resistance to the empire. It's a right. radical act of of being rooted in Jesus's religion, which I'm, as I hear you say this, I'm feeling very comforted and encouraged by that because you can look at these facts and be really daunted and depressed. Um, and it's good to think that, you know, sometimes the small choices that we make might actually be very radical things that might in, have the power to change things. Well, and it's a reminder that um, when you work in, in community that um, that you're rejecting this top-down power um, that Jesus endorsed this um, working towards service or service-centered work. Um, so I'm hoping that uh, individuals who listen to us and share this information with their friends and family members and uh, business partners that and York speak a little bit more about uh, especially in the uh, Christian tradition that Jesus was not focused on um, the empowering of the elite that um, Jesus was more uh, focused in a, uh, a relationship with community and service to others making sure everyone has enough if you open the gospel somewhere in the beginning, um, I mean, take the gospel of Luke, for instance, there is Mary's song of praise. Mm -hmm. and, and Mary puts it very clearly, right? She says, so uh, she praises God who has lifted up the lowly servant. And then she also says, this God who lifted up the lowly servant pushed the powerful from their throne. She said it, not me. Uh, she talks about how God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. Uh, again, she said it. So what we're talking about here is not simply we have some harmless little um, sandbox games mm -hmm. to play, you know, while while the empire is ruling. We're actually talking about real alternatives. Lifting up the lowly, filling the hungry with good things are not just harmless works of charity that mm -hmm. you do once in a while, but, but they really change the world in their own ways. I would push it a little beyond service, though, because mm -hmm. we think of service as something that we Great. do for yes, others. Great, yes, I was going to ask you uh, yeah, so I, I often talk it. about it in terms of solidarity. And, and by solidarity, you're talking about community again, but you're also talking about agency. So people in the community now become the actors. Right. That takes you back to politics. When you think of politics as electing some politician to be your rulers for a certain amount of time, um, now we have to rethink about who is really the one who acts in politics. And so I would like to reclaim mm -hmm. people acting together as, as the basic force behind politics. This is what Americans are proud of in terms of their democracy. But today, uh, when we talk democracy, we basically talk about politics. Mm -hmm. uh, what if we talked about economic democracy as well? I know we get back to that in a later chapter, mm -hmm. but those two things cannot be separated. I think that's a great tee up for our next episode. Yes. Uh, look forward to talking more about the 
economic democracy of Jesus in coming coming episodes. Um, David, thank you. And Jorg, absolutely. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. So we'll be back um, for our third in this series. So uh, we hope that our listening audience are enjoying what we're having um, presented with uh, Dr. Rieger. Our Faith and Reason 360 podcasts are, I'll remind everyone, free to all of our listeners. However, we are open to donations, uh, and no donation is too small. So we encourage you to visit our website, faithandreason.org. Again, F-A-I-T-H-A-N-D-R-E-A-S-O-N. Dot org. And also, if you're interested in purchasing Dr. Jorg Rieger's book uh, regarding the subject matter that we've been discussing in these episodes, uh, you can uh, purchase that book online. It's available at Amazon. Uh, that's Amazon.com. And uh, when you're looking for Jorg's book, look for Jesus versus Caesar by Jorg Rieger, and I'm going to spell that J-O-E-R-G-R-I-E-G-E-R. And we're really glad everyone was with us. Yes, this program is produced by Faith and Reason, a program of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation. Evermore.